Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. We've got three parts for you today. Actually, it's more like two and a half. In part one, I'll review our win over Sampdoria on Sunday. In part two, I'll check in on the other clubs at the top of the table. And in part three, I'll very quickly review our Primavera match against Cosenza on Saturday. So let's start with the match on Sunday against Sampdoria, which we won 2-0 on goals from Fabian Ruiz and Victor Osimhen. This was an unusually open game right from the opening whistle. As we saw in Sampdoria's game against Milan, they are a confident team going forward. I was a little surprised they didn't attack more from the wings with their fullbacks. Meanwhile, we created all kinds of chances and fortunately we were able to score twice. The second goal didn't come until late in the match, so it was still a pretty stressful match to watch. A one goal lead never seemed safe and we nearly blew it had it not been for a VAR review that took a goal away from Sampdoria. I did not see any complaints about that decision though. Even still, I couldn't help but feel fortunate to get the three points for how many chances we missed. On another day, we might have scored four or five, but we needed to be more clinical in this one. Fortunately, we have Kaladu Koulibaly at the back. He was excellent, as was his counterpart Omar Kali in defending Victor Osiman. We didn't take many chances, but we were definitely very positive in the attack. We scored one of our most beautiful goals all season. We used different looks in the attack. As we saw in the first goal, sometimes we attacked through the middle with quick passes. Other times we played the ball over the top, and yet other times we looked to strike on the counterattack. We also finally used Victor Osman in the way he's meant to be used. We didn't just play the ball to his feet for him to hold up play like we normally do with Andrea Petania. Instead, we played the ball into space for him to run onto, and lo and behold, it worked really well. 
We'll review all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match, but first, let's review the starting lineups. Claudio Ranieri made three changes compared to our predicted 11. He lined up in a 4-4-2 with Emil Adauro in goal. Maya Yoshida started over Lorenzo Tonelli at centre-back alongside Omar Cauley. Tommaso Augello played at left-back and Bartosz Berzinski played at right-back. Martin Thorsby and Mikael Damsgaard started in the centre of the midfield. We had Christopher Eskilson starting in the midfield and Damsgaard on the left wing. Instead, Ranieri started Jakob Bianto on the left wing. Antonio Candreva started on the right wing, and Fabio Quagliarella and Manolo Gabbiadini started up top. For Napoli, Gennaro Gattuso made five changes to the squad that he fielded against Juventus, and two compared to our predicted 11. David Ospina started in goal over Alex Meret. Costas Manolas returned to the starting 11 to start over Amir Rachmani alongside Kalidou Koulibaly. Mario Rui also returned to spell Elcid Hisai at left back, while Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again at right back. Diego Deme and Fabian Ruiz started together in the double pivot once again. As usual, Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, but Matteo Politano started over Chucky Lozano on the right wing. I wonder if that was because Lozano was on a suspension and Gattuso was saving him for the Inter match. If that was the plan, it didn't work. Lozano picked up a yellow only 5 minutes after replacing Politano in the 73rd minute, so he will miss the Inter match anyway. Piotr Zielinski started again in the 10th spot, and Viktor Osimhen made his second start in 3 matches, starting over Dries Mertens. So those were the starting lineups, next let's revisit our 3 keys to the match. Our first key to the match was to limit Sampdoria's shots because they have some lethal goal scorers. Even though Sampdoria took 9 shots, I'm going to say that we achieved this goal. Of those 9 shots, only 5 were on target, and the ones that missed the target were not even close. Of the 5 shots on target, only 2 of them were legitimate goal scoring chances, both by Manolo Gabbiadini. Both times, David Ospina made big saves. The first came immediately after Audaro made a massive save on Lorenzo Insigne. Sampdoria came back the other way and Gabbiadini got a shot off before crashing into the challenging Ospina, but Ospina made the save. The second was later in the second half where Ospina made a fine save on Gabbiadini's shot from outside the area. Sampdoria also had three shots blocked, and all three times it was Kalidou Koulibaly who made the block. He was an absolute beast in this match. He covers a ton of ground and often hides the mistakes of his fellow defenders. There were at least two occasions in this match where Mario Rui got caught and Koulibaly raced across to cover for him. Unfortunately, on one of those plays, he picked up a yellow card, which I suppose you could say is the one knock on him this season. He can't seem to stay out of the official's book. That was his 8th yellow card of the season. Finally, for those who've played football, specifically as a defender, you probably recognize Koulibaly's positional awareness as well. I know our friend Joey Kakabala comments on this on Twitter all the time. What I mean by positional awareness is moving into the right spaces to influence the movement of the opposing player, which is perhaps easiest to describe with a few examples. One example is where the defender sets up when the attacking player is on the ball. Since Koulibaly is a center left, imagine the attacking player has the ball on the right side of the area. What you will see Koulibaly do is position his body so the attacking player is forced to move out wide. That reduces the shooting angle which makes the target smaller for the attacking player. At the same time, he'll stay tight enough to make the block, but not too tight where he's overcommitted and can get beat or commit a foul. Another example is how he closes the passing lane, which requires awareness of the positions of two players and an anticipation of where the pass will be played. 
Sometimes the opponent attempts to pass and he makes the block, or other times the opponent is forced to turn back. Finally, you can see how well Koulibaly defends two players at the same time, which is the most difficult of these examples. The best approach here depends on where the ball is, but in a way, this is a combination of the other two examples. You want to play the inside player tight enough to force the pass out wide, but if the inside player does get the ball, you will see Koulibaly slowly close that player down, but via a route that also blocks the passing lane to the other player. Now all of that is fairly nuanced, but suffice to say, Koulibaly is way too good to let him go. Our second key to the match was that we could not give Sampdoria any gifts. I'm going to say that we achieved this goal as well. As I mentioned, I thought we defended quite well in this match and we didn't concede too many quality chances. Really, the only major defensive blunder we made in this match was when Manolas passed the ball straight to Damsgaard in the middle of our own half, which led to a shooting chance for Gabbiadini. Fortunately, he missed, partially because of the pressure from Manolas, who was desperately trying to atone for his error and actually picked up a yellow card in the process. Had Gabbiadini scored there, or had Sampdoria scored on the ensuing free kick, I'd probably say we failed in this regard, but they did not. Finally, our third key to the match was to watch out for Sampdoria's fullbacks getting forward. We achieved this one as well. Like I said, I was surprised at how little Agudelo and Berezinski pushed up the field, but at the same time, I think this was because of how well we pressed Sampdoria and forced them to concede possession. All in all, I think we did quite well with respect to our three keys to the match. I have two more points I want to discuss before I close this review. The first is the disallowed goal. Before I even get to the goal, I have to comment on Gattuso's substitutions. This was something we talked to Daniel Russo about after our 4-2 loss to Atalanta, which is the unwritten rule that you don't make changes on a defensive corner kick. You just don't do it. Had VAR not intervened, this would have been the second time this season where Gattuso made a change on a defensive corner and we conceded a goal. Ironically, the one change he probably should have made was to replace an injured David Ospina with Alex Meret, and he didn't make it. So, Morten Thorsby heads in the ball, but the goal is ruled out. I definitely think the correct decision was made there. It appeared as though Thorsby nudged Koulibaly in the back before pushing off of him to win the header. I'm fairly certain that was why VAR ruled out the goal, but in his post-match conference, Claudio Ranieri said the goal was actually ruled out for Balde's foul, on Ospina. In fact, Balde did foul Ospina before the ball crossed the line. In either case, I think the right decision was made. By the way, if you haven't seen or read Ranieri's comments in the conference, he had a great quote that I tweeted out when he was asked about his embrace with Gennaro Gattuso and this man is a true gentleman. Back to the disallowed goal, we were rather fortunate in the sense that had there not been a foul, we would have dropped points here. I always tweet my thoughts at the break and one of my thoughts was that we needed to score one more goal because a one goal lead simply did not feel safe. I spoke to our friend Gaetano Solazzo about this offline as well. We squandered so many chances in this match and it nearly cost us. We had 20 shot attempts and 9 were on target, so we did really well to create chances which I'll get to in a second but we need to be more clinical. Zielinski had a couple of chances he probably should have done better on, one in the opening minutes of the match after a rare right-footed cross from Politano that was on the money, the second was in the second half where Fabian played him through and he should have shot across the face of the goal but instead he went for the near post and Audaro made the save. We nearly scored a lucky goal where Maya Yoshida cleared the ball straight into Giovanni Di Lorenzo and had to make a second clearance to stop the rebound. That play actually started with a well-executed set piece. 
Aldero made a couple of big saves as well, especially on Lorenzo Insigne in the second half. Finally, Insigne, Mertens, and Fabian all had efforts sail over the bar. That said, I also thought we were unlucky not to be awarded a penalty in the first half when Kali stepped on Manolas's foot in the area. I know the foul was not intentional, but frankly, intent does not matter. I think if that play happens anywhere else on the pitch, that foul is called and Kali is probably shown a yellow card. As I mentioned though, while our finishing was poor, I thought we did a great job creating chances, which is the final point I want to discuss. I thought we showed great versatility in attack. On some occasions, we played the long ball over the top, looking for Osiman, which I'll get to in a moment. Other times, we attacked with quick passes through the middle, as we did on Fabian's goal. For me, that was our goal of the season. We made 9 passes in the build-up, and the final 4 were just incredible. You simply cannot stop a team that moves the ball as quickly as Deme, Fabian, Osiman, and Zielinski did on that play. We played three straight one-touch passes, including a lovely backheel from Osimen, which we've seen him do before. Fabian's touch to receive Zielinski's pass was sublime, and the finish was class. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse of just what this team is capable of. We also played well on the counterattack that Zielinski missed that I mentioned came from a counterattack where Insignia pressed Berezinski into turning the ball over. Mario Rui played Insignia down the wing, and he spotted Fabian in the middle of the pitch. There was also a play in the first half where Insignia played an outlet to Fabian again in the middle of the pitch. He took one touch and then launched Osiman into space. In the end, nothing came of it, but that is exactly how we need to use Osiman. Perhaps it's because he's playing more regularly now, but we're finally starting to take advantage of his assets. I mentioned the long balls over the top. We were also crossing the ball to him in the air. He got a decent header on target in the second half, but Audero stopped it. And instead of playing the ball to his feet to hold up the play, we were playing it into space and letting him run onto it. Just like I gave Koulibaly credit on the first key to the match, I think we also need to give Omar Kali credit for how well he defended Osiman. There are few players in the league who can keep pace with Osiman, but Kali is one of them. He actually beat Osiman to the ball on a couple of occasions, and he has the height to defend Osiman in the air. Unfortunately for Sampdoria, we did get a mismatch with Maya Yoshida marking Osiman in the second half, and Dries Mertens exploited it, playing Osiman through on the second goal. Once again, Osiman showed us how good his touch is. He didn't need as many touches as he did on the goal he scored against Crotone, but he still did very well to set up the shot while sprinting downfield, and the finish was gorgeous. So that will do for this review. In part 2, we'll see how the other teams at the top of the table fared this round. Ma
immaginiamo i collusi e non lasciamo refusi ma Napoli sta storia sapeva già, quei signori eleganti sono passati di qua, perché amare briganti chi non stava colore, per lavare col fuoco che era fuori dal coro. Quando ne passi menta, per terra sai lontana, quando una borda e sonna pulita, Anna. Torna ne passi menta, la terra è più vicina, quando una borda e sonna. In part two, we'll check in on the top of the table. Heading into this round, Inter were top of the table on 71 points. I'm not going to review the Inter game here. As I've said previously, I no longer consider Inter to be our competition with how far ahead of us they are. I did watch the game, which Inter won 1-0, but I'll comment on that later in the week when we preview our upcoming match against Inter. Milan were second in the table with 60 points, 11 points back of Inter. Juve were only one point behind Milan after beating us. Atalanta occupied the final Champions League spot one point behind Juve. We were in fifth on 59 points. Lazio were sixth on 55 points. And Roma rounded out the top seven on 54 points. So let's start with Milan who beat Parma 3-1 on goals from Antti Rebic, Frank Kessi, and Rafael Leao. Ricardo Galliolo scored the lone goal for Parma. Milan looked good early on, they were passing the ball quickly and crisply, and Rebic looked like a threat on the left wing. It didn't take long for Milan to find the back of the goal, only minutes after Luigi Seppin made a fine save on a hard shot from Frank Kessie, Rebic opened the scoring. Zlatan Ibrahimovic made a great play to assist on the goal, first he did really well to take the ball down after Ishmael Benacer blasted his pass towards Ibrahimovic. He then played a gentle through ball for Rebic, who let the ball roll across his body before blasting his shot into the top corner. Luigi Seppa had absolutely no chance of making that save. As you would expect, Milan had most of the ball, but Parma defended well. Giuseppe Petzella had an excellent half at the back for Parma. At the other end, Parma never really tested Gigio Donnarumma. The plan seemed to be to strike on the counter with Gervinho and to cross the ball to Graziano Pella in the area, but neither seemed to come off. Milan doubled their lead just before the break, and once again, it was after some quick passes, this time between Teo Hernandez and Ibrahimovic. Teo rolled the ball through for Frank Kessie, and he fired first time into the bottom corner. This was a rare goal from Kessie in open play, though he did take the shot from close to the penalty spot, so Milan took a comfortable 2-0 lead into the break. Roberto Diversa made some changes at the half to stimulate his attack. He replaced Gervinho with Andreas Cornelius. He dropped Dennis Mann a bit deeper and he moved Yurai Kuchka to the left, leaving Cornelius to play up top with Pelle. Those changes facilitated a switch from the 4-3-3 used in the first half to a 4-4-2 used in the second, and the changes seemed to work. Parma got their first real chance of the match in the 51st minute, but Donnarumma made an excellent double save, first on Andrea Conti's header, and then point-blank on Pelle. Kuchka tried an acrobatic scissor kick with the third attempt, but his shot finished over the bar. Milan appeared to be coasting to an easy win when Ibrahimovic was suddenly shown a straight red with half an hour to go. The incident happened off camera, but the replay showed that Ibrahimovic said something that match official Mareska would not accept. Apparently, Ibrahimovic was complaining that Galliolo should have been shown a second yellow, and instead he found himself sent off. 
Parma took advantage of the extra man, pulling one back only 5 minutes later. Kuchka picked up Pelle's run toward the back post. The tall striker head the ball into a dangerous area and Galliolo beat Donnarumma to the ball before tapping it in. Milan seemed really unsettled after Ibrahimovic was sent off. The final quarter of the match was pretty tense, but in the end Milan held on, with Rafael Leao scoring their third in the fourth minute of stoppage time. Moving on, Juventus beat Genoa 3-1 on goals from Dan Kulusevski, Alvaro Morata, and Weston McKenney. Gianluca Scamacca scored the lone goal for Genoa. Andrea Pirlo moved Juan Cuadrado back to his usual position at right back and gave Kulusevski the start on the right wing. That proved to be a wise decision. Only minutes into the match, Kulusevski opened the scoring. Cuadrado completely undressed Nicolo Rovella before cutting the ball back to Kulusevski. Rovella has spent his young career exclusively at Genoa, but he is currently owned by Juve. The finish from Kulusevski was gorgeous. He hasn't had a great year. It certainly hasn't been anything close to his previous campaign with Parma, but the quality he showed with that strike is the reason why Juve bought him. This performance from Juve was more akin to the style of play that Pirlo described in his dissertation. Right from the opening whistle, you could see that Juve were playing with confidence coming off that win over Napoli. They were certainly going after this result, with Chiesa and Ronaldo both going for goal in the opening 10 minutes of the match. That was helped by the fact that Genoa were still trying to get forward, leaving Juve with plenty of space on the pitch to counter. About midway through the half, Morata doubled Juve's lead. Keza nipped the ball away from Ivan Radovanovic at midfield, then turned on the afterburners. Mattia Perin made a fine save on Keza's shot. The ball fell for Ronaldo, but his back heel from a tight angle hit the upright. Morata followed the play, though, and put away his eighth goal of the season. Now, I know Napoli fans never admire anything about Juventus, but one thing you have to give them credit for, at least in this match, is stepping on the throat of their opponent. Even after going up by two, Ronaldo, Chiesa, Morata, and Kulusevski were all hungry for more goals. Adrian Rabiot nearly scored the third, but Perrin stopped Rabiot's shot that was destined for the top corner. Genoa didn't get their first chance of the match until the 44th minute. Juventus target Gianluca Scamacca made a brilliant turn in between Delict and Chiellini to get free, but Wojtek Szczesny was quick off his line, made himself big, and stopped the shot point blank. That was another change that Pirlo made to the lineup, starting Szczesny over Gigi Buffon, who got the win over Napoli. If there's one knock against Juventus' wins lately, it's that they haven't played with this quality for the full 90 minutes. We saw in the Napoli game where Napoli dominated the second half, we saw it in the Lazio game where Lazio were the better side in the first half, and then in this match they led Genoa back in with a goal early in the second half. Scamacca was left unmarked on a corner kick and headed in his 5th in Serie A and his ninth in all competitions. Matthias De Ligt wanted a foul on the play, suggesting that Scamacca was wide open because he shoved him out of the way, but the replay showed that there wasn't really much there. Then in the 55th minute, substitute Marco Piazza had two excellent chances to level the score. His first was a well-hit strike toward the bottom corner, but Chesney made an excellent save to keep it out. Then he had an open shot after a lovely turn in the area, but skied it over the bar. Who knows how this game might have finished had Piazza taken one of those chances. Instead, Juve put the game away about midway through the second half. Danilo played a gorgeous through ball to Weston McKennie and the American calmly finished past Perin to put Juve back up by two. 
At first, it looked like McKenney might have been offside, but the replay showed that Paolo Giglione played McKenney onside. Ironically, it was Giglione with his arms up, calling for the offside. Genoa weren't helped by the fact that Davide Zapacosta had to be removed due to injury, which is a loss in and of itself, but Genoa had already used their 5 substitutions, so not only did they lose a key player, they also had to play the final 15 minutes with only 10 men. Juve passed out the match to secure their second win in a row, since dropping points to Benevento and Torino. Speaking of winning, Atalanta won their 4th straight and their 8th in their last 9 matches, beating Fiorentina 3-2. Duvan Zapata and Josip Ilicic scored for Atalanta, while Dusan Vlahovic scored a brace for Fiorentina. Despite playing with a 4-man backline, Atalanta went immediately on the front foot, and it didn't take long for them to find the back of the goal. In the 13th minute, Zapata was left unmarked in the area, and the Colombian headed in Ruslan Malinovsky's in-swinging corner kick. Zapata nearly scored a second midway through the half after a gorgeous ball from Luis Muriel over the top. Zapata put his volley on target, but Bartolome Dragovski was there to make the save. Despite conceding three goals, Dragovski was arguably the man of the match. He made big save after big save throughout the match and was the only reason that Fiorentina had any chance of getting a result. Moments after that save, Christian Romero caught Vlahovic with a late tackle, and watching in real time, it looked like this may have been a red card offense. However, the replay showed that the foul wasn't that bad, and perhaps Vlahovic embellished a little bit by rolling around a few extra times after the tackle. Nevertheless, Romero picked up a yellow card. That means he will miss Atalanta's next match, which happens to be a massive one against Juventus. Dragovski foiled Zapata again at the half-hour mark. Mario Pazalic played Zapata through to goal, but the Polish keeper kicked the shot away. Unfortunately, there was nothing Dragovski could do to stop Zapata from scoring his second goal in the 40th minute. Malinowski played a delicate chip pass to Zapata, who found himself all alone behind the Fiorentina backline. The Colombian calmly fired past Dragovski to make the score 2-0 which is how the first half ended. That was Malinowski's fifth assist in his last three matches. It looked as though Atalanta were going to coast to the win, but shortly after the break, Vlahovic pulled one back for Fiorentina. Atalanta nearly responded immediately after Brad Jim City flicked his header to Rafael Toloi at the back post. Toloi was point blank, but once again Dragovski made the save. Atalanta looked like a completely different team after that first Vlahovic goal. Their fluid passing and movement from the first half was nowhere to be found in the second half. Vlahovic scored his second goal in the 67th minute. Christian Kouame made a gorgeous sombrero to get past Jim City before squaring to the wide open Vlahovic in front of the goal. He tapped in and all of a sudden, this match was all level. However, before Beppe Iacchini could even finish celebrating the goal, Atalanta were awarded a penalty after Lucas Martinez Quarta handled the ball in the area. Josip Ilicic converted the penalty to put Atalanta back ahead. Atalanta had a few more chances after that. Mario Pazalic missed an open shot from around the penalty spot. In fact, it might as well have been a penalty kick. And then in the 85th minute, Dragovski made another huge save on Zapata after Ilicic played him through. Unfortunately, Dragovski's efforts went to waste as this match finished 3-2. Moving on, Lazio got a last-minute victory over Hellas Verona. Sergei Milinkovic-Savage scored the only goal in the 92nd minute. Neither manager was on the touchline for this match. Ivan Juric was serving his third match ban of the campaign, so Matteo Paro stood in his place. Meanwhile, Simone Inzaghi was out with COVID, so Massimiliano Faris was on the touchline for Lazio. 
Lazio were also without Joaquin Correa and Manuel Lazzari, who were both dismissed very late in their match against Spezia. Felipe Caicedo and Jean-Daniel Akpa-Akpro started in their places, respectively. This was a fairly even match, it was also rather uneventful, neither side created any clear-cut scoring chances. Lazio's best chance in normal time came in the 23rd minute, after Caicedo flicked his header onto Ciro Immobile. Immobile fired from outside of the area, but struck the upright. Immobile can't seem to buy a goal right now, he's been chasing after his 150th goal for Lazio for two months now. That said, the partnership with Caicedo did seem to work well. Caicedo thought he opened the scoring just after the break. He outmuscled Giacomo Magnani before firing past Marco Silvestri. However, VAR reviewed the play and confirmed that Caicedo fouled Magnani on the play, so the goal was overturned. Caicedo did swing his arm back, but you couldn't help but feel for him. Magnani was manhandling Caicedo and Daniela Kifi correctly played the advantage, but in the end, I think the right decision was made. The only chance I could recall from Hellas Verona was in the 35th minute. Federico Di Marco played a lovely through ball to Darko Lazovic on the left side of the area. I'm not sure if Lazovic was trying to square the ball or shoot towards the back post, but all it needed was a touch from Davide Faraone, who made the late run. Instead, the ball rolled harmlessly wide of the goal. It seemed that this match was heading for a nil-nil draw, but in the dying minutes, Milinkovic-Savic snatched the three points. Stefan Radu chipped the ball into the area from the left side of the midfield. The Serbian rose up and headed into the bottom corner. Milinkovic-Savic has become such a clutch player for this Lazio team. He's good on both ends of the pitch. Obviously, he knows how to score now with seven goals and nine assists on the season, but he's also a very useful defender. With his size, he often wins the ball in the air in Lazio's box as well. Meanwhile, Hellas Verona have really struggled to score lately. They haven't scored a goal in three of their last five matches. Finally, Roma beat Bologna 1-0 on a goal from Borja Mayoral. If we didn't already know it, the squad that Roma fielded for this match confirmed that they are squarely focused on the Europa League. Antonio Mirante, Federico Fazio, Gonzalo Villar, Brian Reynolds, Carlos Perez, and Borja Mayoral all started in this match. For Reynolds, it was his first career start in Serie A. Even Javier Pastore made an appearance in this match. Finally, Henrik Mkhitaryan made his first appearance in a month after injuring his calf against Genoa. With all these changes, perhaps it wasn't surprising that Bologna were actually the better side in the first half. They had four excellent scoring chances in the opening quarter of the match alone. First in the ninth minute, Andreas Skovolson cut the ball back for Musa Barrow. He scuffed his shot, but the ball fell for Rodrigo Palacio, who pulled his shot wide of the goal. A minute later, Skovolson nearly scored a header from Musa Barrow's corner kick, but the shot narrowly missed the target. Bologna came close again from another corner kick in the 20th minute. Again, Barrow played an in-swinging cross, which found Roberto Soriano at the back post. Soriano, who is Bologna's top goal scorer, appeared to have a wide-open goal to shoot at, but somehow Mirante stopped the volley. That was easily Bologna's best chance of the match. Then a minute later, Barrow played a square ball across the box to Danilo, but his shot with the instep of his right boot missed the mark. I'm sure Sinisa Mihailovic was not happy his side didn't take any of their chances. Roma created next to nothing in the entire half, and yet they opened the scoring just before the break. 
Roma needed a bit of good fortune as well as skill to score their goal. Gianluca Mancini played a ball over the top to Mayoral. Danilo attempted to head the ball out, but instead he flicked it into the pass of Mayoral, who was 1v1 with Luka Skorupski. Skorupski must have thought that he could get to the ball first because he was way off his line. Instead, Mayoral got there first and calmly chipped the ball over the sliding keeper to get clear to the open goal and to give Roma the 1-0 lead. I'm not sure what Fonseca said at the break, but Roma took control of the match in the second half. They still didn't create many chances, but they were certainly the more positive side and definitely had more of the ball. Perhaps Bologna were demoralized by that goal late in the first half because they were really flat in the second half. It was actually a little bit odd. Bologna seemed to play with a bit more urgency when the score was 0-0 than when they fell behind. Other than a Bruno Perez shot that was stopped by Skudupski, there weren't too many other chances to report. Romanisti will still be happy though, their side picked up all three points while still resting a number of key players ahead of the second leg of the Europa League tie against Ajax on Thursday. So in the end, the top of the table didn't change at all this round. All seven teams at the top of the table won their matches. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll review our Primavera match on Sunday. Final part will quickly review our Primavera match on Saturday against Cosenza. This was our round 17 fixture after our round 16 match against Frosinone was postponed. Heading into this match, we were sitting in fifth place, tied with Crotone on 21 points, but with a slightly inferior goal differential. We came into this match unbeaten in our last four. We beat Regina 2-0 and Salernitana 1-0. Then we drew Pisa 1-1 and we beat Regina again 2-1. Meanwhile, Cosenza were playing their first match in nearly a month after their matches against Crotone, Benevento, Crotone again, and Pisa were all postponed. Their last match was a 3-1 win over Virtus Santella on March 13th, which makes it difficult to judge the quality of this team. They've played two games fewer than we have, and if they win those two games, they'd only be three points behind us heading into this match. While rest is generally a good thing, you would expect the players to be a bit out of form after being off for so long. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. 
Cosenza lined up in a 4-3-3 with Francisco Montoya in goal. Paulo Ficara and Graham Ziska started at centre-back. Samuele Pascali started at left-back and Baldovino Cimino started at right-back. Mario Gaudio played as De Regista in behind Frank Teyu and Aldo Florenzi in the centre of the midfield. Andrea Belcastro started on the left wing, Francesco Azzaro started on the right wing, and Massimo Zilli started at striker. For Napoli, Emanuele Cascione made only one change to the squad that he fielded against Regina. He lined up in a 4-4-2 with Huberi Dasiak in goal once again. Davide Costanzo and Jonathan Spedalieri started at centre-back. Flavio Romano started at left-back and Benedetto Barba started at right-back. Raffaele Virgilio and Brando Sami started in the centre of the midfield. Valerio Labriola returned from injury to start over Antonio Cioffi on the left wing. And Antonio Vergara started once again on the right wing. Finally, Vincenzo Furina and Giuseppe D'Agostino started together up top. Unfortunately, even the highlights for this match were not available, so I'm relying on a short match report available on Napoli's official website and the live updates from imnaples.it, which is where I track these matches. It seems the first half was fairly even and Napoli took a very cautious approach. Neither side created any legitimate goal-scoring opportunities. In the 12th minute, D'Agostino had a shot from a tight angle sail over the bar. Neither side had a shot on target before the cooling break midway through the half. It must have been pretty warm in Cosenza for there to even be a cooling break. This match was played at the Stadio di Magro di Montalto in Cosenza. After a rather uneventful first half, the clubs went into the break tied nil-nil. Cosenza went on the attack early in the second half and made claims for a handball in the 52nd minute, but it wasn't given. A few minutes later, Cascione made his first changes, replacing Furina with Giuseppe Ambrosino and Barba with Vincenzo Potenza. The first real chance in the match for either side came in the 62nd minute when D'Agostino tested Montoya, but the Cosenza keeper made a fine save to push the shot out for a corner kick and to protect the draw. The Azzurini continued to play, and in the 75th minute we finally got our breakthrough. Vergara carried into the area and fired a low hard shot into the corner on the right side of the goal to put Napoli ahead. Cascione made his third substitution a few minutes later, replacing Labriola with Gennaro Iaccarino. Only a couple minutes later, we nearly doubled the lead, but Ambrosino's shot grazed the upright to the left of Montoya and went out for a goal kick. Only a couple minutes later, we nearly doubled the lead, but Ambrosino's shot grazed the upright to the left of Montoya and went out for a goal kick. Other than a few shots over the bar, Cosenza didn't pose much of a threat. In fact, even with the lead, we had the final chance of the match. Once again, it was Ambrosino in the fourth out of five minutes of stoppage time, but again, Montoya stopped the shot. In the end, we got a deserving 1-0 victory. We're now unbeaten in our last five matches with four wins and one draw. Meanwhile, Crotone lost 2-0 to Frosinone, so we've now overtaken them for fourth place in the table. Spezia beat Benevento 1-0, so they overtook Crotone as well. Both of them are three points behind us on 21 points, but Spezia has two games in hand on us, so if they win both, they would surpass us. Spezia is the only team we have yet to play, so those two matches against them are going to be massive. Lecce and Pescara are at the top of the table on 31 points. Pescara are going to be difficult to catch. They're top of the table and only three teams have played fewer games than they have. Lecce, along with Pisa and Regina, have played the most games in the league at 16, which is two more than us. If we win both of those games in hand, we'd be at 30 points, so they are very much within our reach. 
and Tella are currently in third place with 25 points, so one point more than we have, but they've also played an extra game. That means we're in a pretty good position. The goal is to finish in the top three. The winner of each of the two Primavera Due groups are automatically promoted to Primavera Uno. I doubt we'll win the group, but the second and third place teams in each group play in a promotion playoff to determine the third club to be promoted. So that will do for this review. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'll be back later in the week with another bonus episode, so stay tuned for that. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Fortsanopoli sempre. Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.